text for the sermon this afternoon is the word of God as we have summarized it and confessed it in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let us now read that Lord's Day. You can find it on page 539. Lord's Day 27, this is our confession. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood and redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Thus far, our confession. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, a number of years ago I heard a Reformed theologian speaking on baptism. This particular theologian had grown up in a Baptist church and had come to embrace Reformed theology and infant baptism later in life. Now he told about a box that was located at the back of his childhood church. And at the back or above that box was written these words, inside this box you will find everything that the Bible teaches about infant baptism. And when you opened the box, it was empty. Now, this is a rather compelling argument. Indeed, there is not a single text that explicitly says that babies must be baptized. Nor is there a text that gives an example of a baby being baptized. On top of that, the examples of baptisms that we do find in the New Testament all speak of people believing and then being baptized. Yet we continue to hold on to this idea of infant baptism. We just witnessed an infant being baptized. Why is that? Now this is a question that many of us have been confronted by. Perhaps you have family members or friends who have been rebaptized, Or perhaps you have had debates on the issue. Perhaps you have yet to be confronted by the issue but it is likely that you will be confronted by this issue. 
We live in a Christian context that is dominated by those who hold to the credo Baptist view, that is the believer baptism view. And they will argue that we go against scripture, against God's word, when we baptize our infants. And so this afternoon, we hope to look a little closer at scripture and what scripture teaches us about baptism and specifically about infant baptism and what we confess in Lord's Day 27, especially question and answer 74. What we do in these afternoon sermons, these catechism sermons, is we, we sit under a teaching sermon, what is called a didactic sermon. And so this afternoon, we will look at what Scripture teaches us, and we will, we will learn. And as we do that, we will do that in conversation with the Reformed Baptist view of baptism. Now, there's quite a theological spectrum within the Baptist church. We, I think, sometimes have this caricature that they are all exactly the same, and they all have exactly the same view. But there is a broad range And so I intend this afternoon to interact with the Reformed Baptist view. And I think many of us are more familiar with the Armenian Baptist view, the idea that you choose God and then you get baptized. That is a view that is not as as common today as the Reformed Baptist view. And I think it is something that we run into a lot more. And so it is my hope this afternoon that through the preaching, through this teaching sermon, you will come to learn more about what you believe, come to embrace it, come to appreciate it, but also that it will help you to lovingly and gently interact with those who hold to a different view. Now, before we get into, before we get into seeing what we have in baptism, we need to see that baptism is God speaking to us. We saw that a few moments ago in the form for baptism. And we saw that in Lord's Day 26. God speaks in the sacraments, in the signs and the seals. They are God's way of saying something to us. So what we're going to see this afternoon is that God also speaks to infants. He speaks to babies. And he does so for two reasons. In the first place, because they belong to the covenant. And secondly, we'll see because they belong to the church. Now, you could say that the covenant belongs to them, because that's really what we have in the covenant. In the covenant, God makes promises to his people. The promises belong to them and to their children. We see that most clearly in the Old Testament. God made promises to to Adam and Eve. He made promises to Abram. He made promises to Noah. He made promises to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob. And those promises carried on to their children. It was explicit in the promise. Genesis 9.9, we see it with Noah. Genesis 17.7, we see it with Abram. God worked through the families. And with Abram, we see that circumcision, the sign of the covenant with Abram, that sign was given to children. The promises were theirs. And interestingly, this morning we read the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment. There God addresses children explicitly. 
He says, honor your father and your mother. And then he restates one of the promises of the covenant so that you will live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you and it will go well with you. So in the Old Testament, God speaks to children. Clearly speaks to children. They belong to the covenant. And not only that, God speaks the promises and the obligations to them. Children belonged. Now thus far, we have complete agreement with the Baptist position. Now the difference comes as we approach the New Testament. It comes as we consider whether God's way of working through the families continues into the New Testament. Now the Baptist theologian will argue that with Israel, indeed, God worked through the generations. But with the New Testament, he removed that genealogical element. The covenant does not go through the families, from parents to children. It is only on the basis of faith. Basically, they argue for a larger degree of discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. And they deny that there is this unity to the one covenant of grace. God works in one way in the Old Testament, another way in the New Testament. So they will be emphatic. Children do not belong to the covenant. And the promises are not addressed to them. The covenant promises only come to those who have faith. Children cannot hear the promises. They cannot come to faith. They cannot understand. So the promises are not made to them. And that means that the sign cannot be given to them. So that is the argument. But, but is that really the case? Did the New Testament erase that way of working through the families? Do, do children today have less than their Old Testament counterparts have? Is there this big discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant? Now, earlier we read Acts 2. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we have these words, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. Now this last part is interesting. It contains something familiar. It contains an echo. It echoes the words that the Lord spoke to Abram. In Genesis 17, 7, we read, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, if we hear that echo, Peter's listeners on Pentecost Day heard it even louder. They were all faithful Jews. They had all assembled for Pentecost, the Jewish feast of Pentecost. They were all in Jerusalem so he was speaking to lifelong Jews. Now, if Peter did not mean to say that the promise continued through the families in the same way it always had, then he would have had some confused Jewish Christians on his hands. The early Jewish Christians would have understood 
that God was working in the same way and that their children had everything that their children had previously had. They would have concluded that the promise indeed was to them and to their children. But a hundred years ago, the theologian B.B. Warfield really made the, the point that, that continues to be made today. And he said this, the argument in a nutshell is this, is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to his ordinances. My ordinances, he means baptism. If the sign of the covenant, baptism, is not to be applied to children in the same way that the Old Testament sign of the covenant was applied, then it would have had to be said somewhere. And it is not. So you may ask, now why don't we read of accounts of infant baptism? Why are there no, no accounts of little babies being baptized? That means we really need to look at the New Testament and understand what's going on there. What we have in the New Testament are the first generation of Christians coming to faith. So yes, there will be accounts of believer, believer baptisms. But we make an error if we then take that first generation experience and prescribe it, make it the rule for future generations. We are not told that children were not baptized. And we are not told that the way of working through the generations has been discontinued. In fact, working with that understanding of how God works through the generations, those, those texts that deal with the household baptisms make more sense. Those accounts of the household baptisms are, are texts that cause a bit of a problem for the believer baptism position. They don't really make sense. They're hard to figure out. Because what do you have? You have, for instance, the Philippian jailer. It says that the Philippian jailer believed, singular, and then he and his household were baptized. And we also read of other, we read of Cornelius, Acts 10. We read of Lydia, Acts 16. Crispus, Acts 18. Stephanus, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 and 16. They were all people who believed and were baptized with their households. Working with that understanding of how God works through the generations, those texts make more sense. And so children, you belong. God speaks to you, truly speaks to you in baptism. You just saw a baby get baptized. God spoke to that baby. You belong to God's covenant. You belong to his people. He is God, your father. Jesus Christ is your brother, your savior. And the Holy Spirit has promised to work on you 
you belong. God has not taken that away from you. You have not been put outside. And you have not been denied the sign of the covenant, the sign that speaks to you. That's something that you can carry with you your whole life. You are not alone. You belong to God. The promise of forgiveness, the promise of God's love, the promise of the working of the Holy Spirit, it's not just for your parents, it's for you. They all come to you, just like those promises were made to, to Jacob, or to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Esau. The promises are given to you. God works in that way still. It did not end with the Old Testament. That promise that you have is like a present. It's a present that you have. It's yours, but it needs to be unwrapped. And as you unwrap it throughout your life, those covenant promises will be more and more taken hold of by you. And at some point in your life, you will say, yes, those promises are mine. That is a call that comes to you in your baptism. A call that comes from hearing the promises. You will be called at one point in your life to say, yes, I have heard you. You have told me that I am yours. And I now say that you are mine. And that calling, that speaking to you, that God does, that begins when you're a baby. God has called you by his name. Appreciate what God has said to you. Appreciate who you are. And don't despise the promises that were made to you. And that baptism means something to you right now. Have you ever thought of that? What does your baptism mean to you? What will that mean to Jenna? Three years from now, four years from now, seven years from now, ten years? Is it simply something that happened and had no other implications? What does it mean for our lives in the here and now that a little water was sprinkled on our heads? What does that speak to us? And parents, what does that speak to you when you see that with your children? The answers to these questions really go to looking at how children are part of God's church, part of the covenant community. And it speaks to, to how children grow up in that community, grow up as part of the church. And that's important, as part of the church. Because it is at this point that we will have a disagreement again with Baptists. The Baptist theologian will argue that Israel in the Old Testament was a type of the church, but not the church. Israel was what they call a mixed body. It contained believers and unbelievers. The New Testament church, on the other hand, only contains believers. The church is pure. They emphatically state that their children are not part of the church. Their children are not Christians. They do indeed benefit from being around Christians. 
but they are not Christians in the sense that they belong to the church. That only comes when they come to faith. Again, you can see that discontinuity being stressed. God did indeed work that way in the past. Children were part of Israel, but no longer in the New Testament. Children are not part of the church. They are not Christians. As one Baptist theologian put it, what is unique about the nature of the New Covenant community is that it comprises a regenerate, believing people, not a mixed people like the Israel of old. So, so how does this now connect to baptism? Well, the issue is this. If the church, if the covenant community is only comprised of, is only made up of believers, then infant baptism cannot mark the entry of someone into that community. The issue is this, we are all painfully aware of this. There are many who are baptized, who do not come to faith. They do not remain believers. And so the argument goes that since some babies will grow up not to be believers, then that sign cannot be given to them. Here we need to stop and ask a couple of questions. We need to ask whether or not they have accurately understood what God has said about the church in the New Testament. Does scripture speak of children as not being part of the church? And then connected to that, does the church here on earth, does scripture speak of the church here on earth in the New Testament, the local church, as containing only regenerated believers. Let's look at that question of children in the church first. In the letter to the Ephesians and in the letter to the Colossians, Paul addresses children. In Ephesians 6, we read these words, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. If you turn to Ephesians 1, you'll see who Paul was writing to. There he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, literally the holy ones, in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's addressing the church in Ephesus. He's addressing the saints. And while addressing these saints, he addresses children. He repeats the fifth commandment and the promise. So we see here that Paul did not view the church in the same way as has been presented to us by the Baptist view. The church included children. Now regarding the question of whether or not the church may contain unbelievers, we have to look at those passages in scripture that we call the warning passages. We read one of them earlier, Hebrews 3. The writer of Hebrews there calls 
his readers, holy brothers. Then he calls them brothers. And then he proceeds to warn them. And he says that they will become like the Israelites who died in the desert during the Exodus. So the writer of Hebrews is is not drawing that sharp distinction between the Old Testament church or Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. He addresses them in the same way. In fact, he uses Psalm 95, a psalm addressed to that mixed body of believers to address the New Testament church. So this discontinuity that is often emphasized by Baptist theologians is simply not there in the same way that they see it. The church does not really replace or supersede Israel. Israel expands to include all the nations. They become the Israel of God, Romans 9, 6. Psalm 87, beautiful psalm that looks ahead to the universal church. Says these words, I will record Rahab, that's Egypt, and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. That's the gospel that Peter is looking forward to in his Pentecost sermon. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Israel now expands to bring in all the nations in Christ. Israel is the church, and the church continues to function in the same way simply now with all the nations. It includes children, it includes those who will fall away. But now we need to look at the implication of our view of baptism that we find from Scripture, and also the implication of a view that would put children outside the church, that does not see them as Christians. And this really speaks to how we raise our children in the church. One of the challenges that you run into when you look at the Baptist view is that they see their children as unbelievers, as neutral. For instance, if you read evangelism material, you will see them speak of evangelizing their children. They, They essentially see their children as unbelievers, as heathens that need to receive the gospel and be brought into the church. As has been pointed out by others, this, this view essentially sees children as growing up along two tracks. The one track is the track that all children, believing from believers or from unbelievers, goes on. Just the normal track of growing up. The other track is one that is focused on bringing them to faith. Now, we need to understand that this is a completely unscriptural distinction. We we do not find that distinction in Scripture at all. In Scripture, there is only one track. The normal raising of a child is the Christian way of raising a child. We don't evangelize our unchristian children. We, We raise our children in the fear of God's name. Deuteronomy 6 They are children of God. They belong to him. That's what baptism says. That's the beauty, the gospel of baptism. 
that God has acted on us. Something has happened outside of us and said something to us. We raise our children as God's children because that's who they are. The children of believers are incorporated, made part of the body in baptism. Just as circumcision incorporated infants into Israel. By baptism, we are marked apart from the world and marked apart to God. And that has serious implications for how they are raised. Everything we do as parents is based on this gospel. It has such implications for how we raise our children. They have been marked apart to God. They have been spoken to by God in baptism. They have been baptized into his triune name. They have been renamed at baptism. And so we do not raise them to become Christians. We raise them to become who they are. And that carries with it such a responsibility. Responsibility for parents, but a responsibility for us to respond to our baptism. To embrace who we are in Christ. And all the promises that have been given. In baptism, the king comes to you and says, you are my child. So often we respond to that by acting like orphans. By acting like those who have no parents. Embrace your father. Your father has spoken to you. He has given promises to you. Embrace those promises. Do not throw away what has been given. Esau received the promises. Ishmael received the promises. But they rejected them. The promises were there, but they turned away. Your baptism calls to you. It calls to you to live a new life. God has spoken to you first, and he calls you to speak in response. One of the things that we often come up against as we confront the question of infant baptism. One of the things we run up against is that people who question infant baptism that have grown up with infant baptism do not do so because they were reading their Bibles and suddenly thought, hey, why do we baptize children? Typically the question comes up because they look around them and they look around and they see people not acting as Christians, not acting as who they are. And then they look and they see friends who are Baptists who take their calling more seriously. And so the questions come up, not because of doctrine, but because of lifestyle. And then they are drawn in to question They're drawn in then to question the rightness of infant baptism, to question whether or not God actually spoke to them. And that's something that should hit us. That so many of those who have questioned infant baptism have done it because we move them to make that word from God seem like nothing. 
That's something that should convict us. It should convict us to live out a response to our baptism, to become who we are. But also it should convict us because we have been used to make God's words meaningless. So embrace what God has done for you in baptism. He has made you part of his people. He has called you by his name. He has made you a child of the king. He has made you royalty. Do not spurn that. Do not take his name in vain. Amen. Let us now respond to the proclamation of the word by singing together hymn 56. If you're able, please rise. Thank you.